Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with The Wretched of the Earth. Last week's reading discussed artists from different cultures trying to create a national culture, the ways in which they would go wrong because they were too molded by Eurocentric sensibilities, and it discussed a bit about the path towards making art that better reflects the actual culture. There was also an eight minute long poem that I read, and we won't have to do that again this week. So let's start this week's reading. The responsibility of the native man of culture is not a responsibility vis-a-vis his national culture, but a global responsibility with regard to the totality of the nation. Whose culture merely, after all, represents one aspect of that nation. The cultured native should not concern himself with choosing the level on which he wishes to fight, or the sector where he decides to give battle for his nation. To fight for national culture means in the first place to fight for the liberation of the nation, the material keystone, which makes the building of a culture possible. There is no other fight for culture which can develop apart from the popular struggle. To take an example, all those men and women who are fighting with their bare hands against French colonialism in Algeria are not by any means stranger to the national culture of Algeria. The national Algerian culture is taking on form and content as the battles are being fought out, in prisons, under the guillotine, and in every French outpost which is captured or destroyed. We must not therefore be content with delving into the past of a people in order to find coherent elements which will counteract colonialism's attempts to falsify and harm. We must work and fight with the same rhythm as the people to construct the future and to prepare the ground where vigorous shoots are already springing up. A national culture is not a folklore, nor an abstract populism that believes it can discover the people's true nature. It is not made up of the inert dregs of gratuitous actions, that is to say, actions which are less and less attached to the ever-present reality of the people. A national culture is the whole body of efforts made by a people in the sphere of thought to describe, justify, and praise the action through which that people has created itself and keeps itself in existence. A national culture in underdeveloped countries should therefore take its place at the very heart of the struggle for freedom which these countries are carrying on. Men of African cultures, who are still fighting in the name of African Negro culture, and who have called many congresses in the name of the unity of that culture, should today realize that all their efforts amount to is to make comparisons between coins and sarcophagi. There is no common destiny to be shared between the national cultures of Senegal and Guinea, but there is a common destiny between the Senegalese and Guinean nations, which are both dominated by the same French colonialism. If it is wished that the national culture of Senegal should come to resemble the national culture of Guinea, it is not enough for the rulers of the two peoples to decide to consider their problems, whether the problem of liberation is concerned, or the trade union question, or economic difficulties, from similar viewpoints. And even here, there does not seem to be complete identity, for the rhythm of the people and that of their rulers are not the same. There can be no two cultures which are completely identical. 
To believe that it is possible to create a black culture is to forget that N-words are disappearing, just as those people who brought them into being are seeing the breakup of their economic and cultural supremacy. Footnote 1. There will never be such a thing as black culture because there is not a single politician who feels he has a vocation to bring black republics into being. The problem is to get to know the place that these men mean to give their people, the kind of social relations that they decide to set up, and the conception that they have of the future of humanity. It is this that counts. Everything else is mystification, signifying nothing. In 1959, the cultured Africans who met at Rome never stopped talking about unity. But one of the people who was loudest in the praise of this cultural unity, Jacques Rabemananjara, is today a minister in the Madagascan government, and as such has decided, with his government, to oppose the Algerian people in the General Assembly of the United Nations. Rabemananjara, if he had been true to himself, ought to have resigned from the government and denounced those men who claim to incarnate the will of the Madagascan people. The 90,000 dead of Madagascar have not Rabamananjara authority to oppose the aspirations of the Algerian people in the General Assembly of the United Nations. It is around the people's struggles that African Negro culture takes on substance, and not around songs, poems, or folklore. Sangor, who is also a member of that Society of African Culture, and who has worked with us on the question of African culture, is not afraid for his part either to give the order to his delegation to support French proposals on Algeria. Adherence to African Negro culture and to the cultural unity of Africa is arrived at in the first place by upholding unconditionally the people's struggle for freedom. No one can truly wish for the spread of African culture if he does not give practical support to the creation of the conditions necessary to the existence of that culture. In other words, to the liberation of the whole continent. I say again that no speech-making and no proclamation concerning culture will turn us from our fundamental tasks, the liberation of the national territory, a continual struggle against colonialism in its new forms, and an obstinate refusal to enter the charmed circle of mutual admiration at the summit. Reciprocal Bases of National Culture and the Fight for Freedom Colonial domination, because it is total and tends to oversimplify, very soon manages to disrupt in spectacular fashion the cultural life of a conquered people. This cultural obligation is made possible by the negation of national reality by new legal relations introduced by the occupying power, by the banishment of the natives and their customs to outlying districts by colonial society, by expropriation, and by the systematic enslaving of both men and women. Three years ago, at our first congress, I showed that, in the colonial situation, dynamism is replaced fairly quickly by substantification of the attitudes of the colonizing power, the area of culture is then marked off by fences and signposts. These are, in fact, so many defense mechanisms of the most elementary type, comparable for more than one good reason to the simple instinct for preservation. The interest of this period for us is that the oppressor does not manage to convince himself of the objective non-existence of the oppressed nation and its culture. Every effort is made to bring the colonized person to admit the inferiority of his culture, 
which has been transformed into instinctive patterns of behavior to recognize the unreality of his nation and, in the last extreme, the confused and imperfect character of his own biological structure. Vis-a-vis this state of affairs, the natives' reactions are not unanimous. While the mass of the people maintain intact traditions which are completely different from those of the colonial situation, and the artisanal style solidifies into a formalism which is more and more stereotyped, the intellectual throws himself in frenzied fashion into the frantic acquisition of the culture of the occupying power, and takes every opportunity of unfavorably criticizing his own national culture, or else takes refuge in setting out and substantiating the claims of that culture in a way that is passionate but rapidly becomes unproductive. The common nature of these two reactions lies in the fact that they both lead to impossible contradictions. Whether a turncoat or a substantialist, the native is ineffectual precisely because the analysis of the colonial situation is not carried out on strict lines. The colonial situation calls a halt to national culture in almost every field. Within the framework of colonial domination, there is not and there will never be such phenomena as new cultural departures or changes in the national culture. Here and there, valiant attempts are sometimes made to reanimate the cultural dynamic and to give fresh impulses to its themes, its forms, and its tonalities. The immediate, palpable, and obvious interest of such leaps ahead is nil. But if we follow up the consequences to the very end, we see that preparations are being thus made to brush the cobwebs off national consciousness, to question oppression, and to open up the struggle for freedom. A national culture under colonial domination is a contested culture whose destruction is sought in systematic fashion. It very quickly becomes a culture condemned to secrecy. This idea of a clandestine culture is immediately seen in the reactions of the occupying power, which interprets attachment to traditions as faithfulness to the spirit of the nation, and as a refusal to submit. This persistence in following forms of cultures which are already condemned to extinction is already a demonstration of nationality, but it is a demonstration which is a throwback to the laws of inertia. There is no taking of the offensive and no redefining of relationships. There is simply a concentration on a hard core of culture, which is becoming more and more shriveled up, inert, and empty. By the time a century or two of exploitation has passed, there comes about a veritable emaciation of the stock of national culture. It becomes a set of automatic habits, some traditions of dress, and a few broken-down institutions. Little movement can be discerned in such remnants of culture. There is no real creativity and no overflowing life. The poverty of the people, national oppression, and the inhibition of culture are one and the same thing. After a century of colonial domination, we find a culture which is rigid in the extreme, or rather, what we find are the dregs of culture, its mineral strata. The withering away of the reality of the nation and the death pangs of the national culture are linked to each other in mutual dependence. This is why it is of capital importance to follow the evolution of these relations during the struggle for national freedom. The negation of the native's culture, the contempt for any manifestation of culture, whether active or emotional, and the placing outside the pale of all specialized branches of organization, contribute to breed aggressive patterns of conduct in the native. 
but these patterns of conduct are of the reflexive type. They are poorly differentiated, anarchic, and ineffective. Colonial exploitation, poverty, and endemic famine drive the native more and more to open, organized revolt. The necessity for an open and decisive breach is formed progressively and imperceptibly, and comes to be felt by the great majority of the people. Those tensions, which hitherto were non-existent, come into being. International events, the collapse of whole sections of colonial empires, and the contradictions inherent in the colonial system strengthen and uphold the natives' combativity while promoting and giving support to national consciousness. These newfound tensions, which are present at all stages in the real nature of colonialism, have their repercussions on the cultural plane. In literature, for example, there is relative overproduction. From being a reply on a minor scale to the dominating power, the literature produced by natives becomes differentiated and makes itself into a will-to-particularism. The intelligentsia, which during the period of repression was essentially a consuming public, now themselves become producers. This literature at first chooses to confine itself to the tragic and poetic style, but later on novels, short stories, and essays are attempted. It is as if a kind of internal organization or law of expression existed, which wills that poetic expression become less frequent in proportion as the objectives and the methods of the struggle for liberation become more precise. Themes are completely altered. In fact, we find less and less of bitter, hopeless recrimination, and less also of that violent, resounding, florid writing, which on the whole serves to reassure the occupying power. The colonialists have, in former times, encouraged these modes of expression and made their existence possible. Stinging denunciations, the exposing of distressing conditions and passions which find their outlet in expression, are in fact assimilated by the occupying power in a cathartic process. To aid such processes is, in a certain sense, to avoid their dramatization and to clear the atmosphere. But such a situation can only be transitory. In fact, the progressive national consciousness among the people modifies and gives precision to the literary utterances of the native intellectual. The continued cohesion of the people constitutes for the intellectual an invitation to go further than his cry of protest. The lament first makes the indictment, and then it makes an appeal. In the period that follows, the words of command are heard. The crystallization of the national consciousness will both disrupt literary styles and themes, and also create a completely new public. While at the beginning the native intellectual used to produce his work to be read exclusively by the oppressor, whether with the intention of charming him or of denouncing him through ethnic or subjectivist means, now the native writer progressively takes on the habit of addressing his own people. It is only from that moment that we can speak of a national literature. Here there is, at the level of literary creation, the taking up and clarification of themes which are typically nationalist. This may be properly called a literature of combat, in the sense that it calls on the whole people to fight for their existence as a nation. It is a literature of combat because it molds the national consciousness, giving it form and contours, and flinging open before it new and boundless horizons. It is a literature of combat because it assumes responsibility, and because it is the will to liberty expressed in terms of time and space. 
On another level, the oral tradition, stories, epics, and songs of the people, which formerly were filed away as set pieces, are now beginning to change. The storytellers who used to relate inert episodes now bring them alive and introduce into them modifications which are increasingly fundamental. There is a tendency to bring conflicts up to date and to modernize the kinds of struggle which the stories evoke, together with the names of heroes and the types of weapons. The method of illusion is more and more widely used. The formula, this all happened long ago, is substituted with that of what we are going to speak of happened somewhere else, but it might well have happened here today, and it might happen tomorrow. The example of Algeria is significant in this context. From 1952 to 53 on, the storytellers, who were before that time stereotyped and tedious to listen to, completely overturned their traditional methods of storytelling and the contents of their tales. Their public, which was formerly scattered, became compact. The epic, with its typified categories, reappeared. It became an authentic form of entertainment, which took on once more a cultural value. Colonialism made no mistake when, from 1955 on, it proceeded to arrest these storytellers systematically. The contact of the people with the new movement gives rise to a new rhythm of life and to forgotten muscular tensions, and develops the imagination. Every time the storyteller relates a fresh episode to his public, he presides over a real invocation. The existence of a new type of man is revealed to the public. The present is no longer turned in upon itself, but spread out for all to see. The storyteller once more gives free rein to his imagination. He makes innovations and he creates a work of art. It even happens that the characters, which are barely ready for such a transformation, highway robbers or more or less antisocial vagabonds, are taken up and remodeled. The emergence of the imagination and of the creative urge in the songs and epic stories of a colonized country is worth following. The storyteller replies to the expectant people by successive approximations, and makes his way, apparently alone but in fact helped on by his public, toward the seeking out of new patterns, that is to say, national patterns. Comedy and farce disappear or lose their attraction. As for dramatization, it is no longer placed on the plane of the troubled intellectual and his tormented conscience. By losing its characteristics of despair and revolt, the drama becomes part of the common lot of the people and forms part of an action in preparation or already in progress. Where handicrafts are concerned, the forms of expression which formerly were the dregs of art, surviving as if in a daze, now begin to reach out. Woodwork, for example, which formerly turned out certain faces and attitudes by the million, begins to be differentiated. The inexpressive or overwrought mask comes to life, and the arms tend to be raised from the body, as if to sketch an action. Compositions containing two, three, or five figures appear. The traditional schools are led on to creative efforts by the rising avalanche of amateurs or of critics. This new vigor in this sector of cultural life very often passes unseen, and yet its contribution to the national effort is of capital importance. By carving figures and faces which are full of life, and by taking as his theme a group fixed on the same pedestal, 
the artist invites participation in an organized movement. If we study the repercussions of the awakening of national consciousness in the domains of ceramics and pottery making, the same observations may be drawn. Formalism is abandoned in a craftsman's work. Jugs, jars, and trays are modified, at first imperceptibly, then almost savagely. The colours, of which formerly there were but few and which obeyed the traditional rules of harmony, increase in number and are influenced by the repercussion of the rising revolution. Certain ochres and blues, which seemed forbidden to all eternity in a given cultural area, now assert themselves without giving rise to scandal. In the same way, the stylization of the human race, which, according to sociologists, is typical of very clearly defined regions, becomes suddenly completely relative. The specialist coming from the home country and the ethnologist are quick to note these changes. On the whole, such changes are condemned in the name of a rigid code of artistic style and of a cultured life, which grows up at the heart of the colonial system. The colonialist specialists do not recognize these new forms, and rush to the help of the traditions of the indigenous society. It is the colonialists who become the defenders of the native style. We remember perfectly, and the example took on a certain measure of importance since the real nature of colonialism was not involved. The reactions of the white jazz specialists, when after the Second World War new styles such as the bebop took definite shape. The fact is that in their eyes jazz should only be the despairing broken down nostalgia of an old negro who is trapped between five glasses of whiskey, the curse of his race, and the racial hatred of the white men. As soon as the Negro comes to an understanding of himself, and understands the rest of the world differently, when he gives birth to hope and forces back the racist universe, it is clear that his trumpet sounds more clearly and his voice less hoarsely. The new fashions in jazz are not simply born of economic competition. We must, without any doubt, see in them one of the consequences of the defeat, slow but sure, of the southern world of the United States and it is not utopian to suppose that in 50 years' time, the type of jazz howl hiccuped by a poor, misfortunate negro will be upheld only by the whites who believe in it as an expression of negritude, and who are faithful to this arrested image of a type of relationship. We might in the same way seek and find in dancing, singing, and traditional rites and ceremonies the same upward-springing trend, and make out the same changes and the same impatience in this field well before the political or fighting phase of the national movement, an attentive spectator can thus feel and see the manifestation of new vigour and feel the approaching conflict. He will note unusual forms of expression and themes which are fresh and imbued with a power which is no longer that of invocation, but rather of the assembling of the people, a summoning together for a precise purpose. Everything works together to awaken the native sensibility and to make unreal and inacceptable the contemplative attitude or the acceptance of defeat. The native rebuilds his perceptions because he renews the purpose and the dynamism of the craftsmen, of dancing and music, and of literature and the oral tradition. His world comes to lose its accursed character. The conditions necessary for the inevitable conflict are brought together. We have noted the appearance of the movement in cultural forms, and we have seen that this movement and these new forms are linked to the state of maturity of the national consciousness. 
Now, this movement tends more and more to express itself objectively in institutions. From thence comes the need for a national existence, whatever the cost. A frequent mistake, and one which is moreover hardly justifiable, is to try to find cultural expressions for, and to give values to, native culture within the framework of colonial domination. This is why we arrive at a proposition which at first sight seems paradoxical. The fact that in a colonized country, the most elementary, most savage, and the most undifferentiated nationalism is the most fervent and efficient means of defending national culture. For culture is first the expression of a nation, the expression of its preferences, of its taboos, and of its patterns. It is at every stage of the whole of society that other taboos, values, and patterns are formed. A national culture is the sum total of all these appraisals. It is the result of internal and external tensions exerted over society as a whole, and also at every level of that society. In the colonial situation, culture, which is doubly deprived of the support of the nation and of the state, falls away and dies. The condition for its existence is, therefore, national liberation and the renaissance of the state. The nation is not only the condition of culture, its fruitfulness, its continuous renewal, and its deepening. It is also a necessity. It is the fight for national existence, which sets culture moving and opens to it the doors of creation. Later on, it is the nation which will ensure the conditions and framework necessary to culture. The nation gathers together the various indispensable elements necessary for the creation of a culture. Those elements which alone can give it credibility, validity, life, and creative power. In the same way, it is its national character that will make such a culture open to other cultures, and which will enable it to influence and permeate other cultures. A non-existent culture can hardly be expected to have bearing on reality, or to influence reality. The first necessity is the re-establishment of the nation in order to give life to national culture in the strictly biological sense of the phrase. Thus we have followed the breakup of the old strata of culture, a shattering, which becomes increasingly fundamental, and we have noticed, on the eve of the decisive conflict for national freedom, the renewing of forms of expression and the rebirth of the imagination. There remains one essential question. What are the relations between the struggle, whether political or military, and culture? Is there a suspension of culture during the conflict? Is the national struggle an expression of a culture? Finally, ought one to say that the battle for freedom, however fertile a posteriori with regard to culture, is in itself a negation of culture? In short, is the struggle for liberation a cultural phenomenon or not? We believe that the conscious and organized undertaking by a colonized people to re-establish the sovereignty of that nation constitutes the most complete and obvious cultural manifestation that exists. It is not alone the success of the struggle which afterward gives validity and vigor to culture. Culture is not put into cold storage during the conflict. The struggle itself, in its development and in its internal progression, sends culture along different paths and traces out entirely new ones for it. The struggle for freedom does not give back to the national culture its former value and shapes. This struggle, which aims at a fundamentally different set of relations between men, cannot leave intact either the form or the content of the people's culture. 
After the conflict, there is not only the disappearance of colonialism, but also the disappearance of the colonized man. This new humanity cannot do otherwise than define a new humanism, both for itself and for others. It is prefigured in the objectives and methods of the conflict. A struggle which mobilizes all classes of the people, and which expresses their aims and their impatience, which is not afraid to count almost exclusively on the people's support, will of necessity triumph. The value of this type of conflict is that it supplies the maximum of conditions necessary for the development and aims of culture. After national freedom has been obtained in these conditions, there is no such painful cultural indecision which is found in certain countries which are newly independent, because the nation by its manner of coming into being, and in the terms of its existence, exerts a fundamental influence over culture. A nation which is born of the people's concerted action, and which embodies the real aspirations of the people while changing the state, cannot exist save in the expression of exceptionally rich forms of culture. The natives who are anxious for the culture of their country, and who wish to give to it a universal dimension, ought not therefore to place their confidence in the single principle of inevitable, undifferentiated independence written into the consciousness of the people in order to achieve their task. The liberation of the nation is one thing, the methods and popular content of the fight are another. It seems to us that the future of national culture and its riches are equally also part and parcel of the values which have ordained the struggle for freedom. And now it is time to denounce certain Pharisees. National claims, it is here and there stated, are a phase that humanity has left behind. It is the day of great concerted actions, and retarded nationalists ought in consequence to set their mistakes aright. We, however, consider that the mistake, which may have very serious consequences, lies in wishing to skip the national period. If culture is the expression of national consciousness, I will not hesitate to affirm that in the case with which we are dealing, it is the national consciousness which is the most elaborate form of culture. The consciousness of self is not the closing of a door to communication. Philosophic thought teaches us, on the contrary, that it is its guarantee. National consciousness, which is not nationalism, is the only thing that will give us an international dimension. This problem of national consciousness and of national culture takes on in Africa a special dimension. The birth of national consciousness in Africa has a strictly contemporaneous connection with the African consciousness. The responsibility of the African as regards national culture is also a responsibility with regard to African Negro culture. This joint responsibility is not the fact of a metaphysical principle, but the awareness of a simple rule which wills that every independent nation in an Africa where colonialism is still entrenched is an encircled nation, a nation which is fragile and in permanent danger. If man is known by his acts, then we will say that the most urgent thing today for the intellectual is to build up his nation. If this building up is true, that is to say, if it interprets the manifest will of the people and reveals the eager African peoples, then the building of a nation is of necessity, accompanied by the discovery and encouragement of universalizing values. Far from keeping aloof from other nations, therefore, it is national liberation which leads the nation to play its part on the stage of history. It is at the heart of national consciousness that international consciousness lives and grows. 
and this twofold emerging is ultimately only the source of all culture. Statement made at the Second Congress of Black Artists and Writers, Rome, 1959. And that concludes this week's reading, and the chapter as a whole, we're done another one. If you have questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on scientimage.org. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. Most of them have more than one person talking on them. But that's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.